Revelation chapter 3, we're going to begin with verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, and this is Jesus speaking to John the Apostle, having him transcribe these words. So Jesus writing, using John. He says, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who holds the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar and the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now before we dive into the particulars of our text, it's important I just very quickly point out two keys to unpacking any, really, of the seven letters recorded in Revelation 2 and 3, but most notably this one. Not only is Jesus, this letter, directed to a literal first century church located here in the city of Philadelphia, but prophetically what's happening is that Jesus is also addressing a specific time period of church history. So he's writing to a literal church, the church of Philadelphia, which was located in Turkey or Asia Minor, but he's also writing to a period of the church, seven letters to the church different time periods. Specifically, the time period of church history Philadelphia represents is what we know as the missional church. Now, as it pertains to this ancient city of Philadelphia, originally built in 189 by Eumenes II, the city named Philadelphia, or brotherly love, was named literally for just that, the love Eunonymes had for his brother and would-be successor, Atelius. Eunonymes' nickname for Atelius was the one in whom his brother loves, Philadelphia. Now, though small in size, which Philadelphia was, it was a very prosperous city, mainly because Philadelphia was uniquely situated upon a very important trade route that connected the east and the west. It was a border town. Philadelphia. It was the final stop as you're working your way through the Roman roads before you would enter more uncivilized areas beyond Romans' influence. Because of her strategic location, historically, Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east. In many ways, the city had become an outpost for the spread of Hellenistic culture into the greater world. In a way, Philadelphia was a missionary center 
for the Greek way of living. Well, this letter was written to an actual congregation similar to ours. The context to this letter is what Philadelphia also represents historically. It's important to address that to understand the particulars of Jesus' letter. Now, though the Reformation was successful in bringing much-needed theological reforms to the church, by and large, Protestantism, the Reformation, it did have one drawback. It, it, it yielded a return to theology and Bible study, but it didn't yield a return to the church's original mission, the commission, the Great Commission, taking the gospel into the world. The one glaring criticism of the Reformation is that because the Reformation churches were specifically tied, like they were interdependent upon the state, they were state churches, Protestantism failed to be missionally minded. The Reformation was internally consumed. Very internal driven, not focused on fulfilling the Great Commission or return to missionary movements. Now, this would change. And it would change really because of two significant historical developments that forced the church to go from having this inward uh, perspective to an outward outlook. The first historical development took place in the late 15th and early 16th centuries and is known today as the Age of Discovery in the hopes of procuring areas of untapped wealth across the Atlantic Ocean. Both Portugal and Spain invested heavily, lots of resources in nautical exploration around the globe. For example, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered the Americas. In 1498, Vasco da Gama was the first to successfully sail from Europe around the Horn of Africa into India. And not to be outdone by their rivals, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the British decide to get in on the action. Exploration with the hopes of establishing their own network of colonies, facilitating trade. As I'm sure you know, and this harkens back to history class, during the late 16th century, we see the rise of what? The British Empire. Not only would the British colonize the Americas, but it would become the largest empire in human history. The British Empire would have a footprint in Africa, India, China, Australia, and Venezuela, aside from the Americans. By 1922, the British Empire actually held sway over 458 million people, or roughly one-fifth of the world's population. At the peak of her power, the British Empire was known as the empire on which the sun never sets. Understand, as a result of both this age of discovery, as a result of the age of discovery, not only did Protestant churches dominate the continent of Europe, but they now were awakened to a much larger world around them, a world beyond her, their borders, a world not exposed to the gospel. But the British Empire would also provide specifically the infrastructure where missionaries could go around the world. So they're awakened to this understanding there's a world around them, but because of the British Empire, there's now 
a way to get there, a way for movement. One historian made this observation, writing what Roman roads did for the spread of the gospel during the first century. British naval routes accomplished the same thing during the 17th and 18th centuries. And yet you would say that the tipping point and the second of these historical developments following the Reformation came with what was known as the first Great Awakening, which took Protestant Europe and British America by storm in the 1730s and 1740s. An awakening. There was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a radical one, a unique one. And as a result of this fresh movement of God and the passion preaching of Bible men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, Protestant churches not only had a renewed understanding of their own personal need for a relationship with Jesus, but there was now a heart to reach the lost world for Christ. Enter a simple British cobbler by the name of William Carey, who was deeply touched, ironically, by the teachings of Jonathan Edwards. In the early 1800s, Carey would boldly take the gospel of Jesus to India, and he would become known as the father of modern missionaries. Carey's perspective was very simple. To know the will of God, we need an open Bible in one hand and an open map in the other. Carey would later write, quote, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong, but amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathens were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse. Though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on the sure word of God, would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. In the mid-1800s, another Brit by the name of Hudson Taylor would carry the gospel to China. During the 51 years he spent in the Orient, his organization, China Inland Mission, would be responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to the country of China that would begin 125 schools and directly result in 18,000 Christian conversions, as well as the establishment of 300 stations of work with more than 500 local helpers in all 18 provinces. That mission would be shut down by the rise of, of communism but the movement of God would continue. Interesting historical tidbit. Most churches thought during, during communism that the church died because China had adopted a policy that they shut down the churches. If they discovered a house church, they would immediately shut it down and take the people and spread them out across the country. It's not a really smart thing to do because you're actively moving your missionaries for them all over the place. No one could get complacent, and so a wildfire spread. There are probably today more Christians in China directly because of Hudson Taylor than there are anywhere else in the world. There is no doubt that during this period of church history, it's characterized, the missional church, the Church of Philadelphia, it's characterized by missionaries willing to carry the gospel into uncharted parts of the world using the trade routes of the British Empire. David, David Livingston's heart for Africa included. 
but it should also be mentioned that this great awakening would produce an evangelical emphasis in the Western world that would initiate a return to biblical exposition and Bible teaching. In the mid-1800s, Charles Spurgeon would pastor Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. His contemporary, D.L. Moody, preached with the same passion, zeal, and tenacity for the lost in his Chicago Avenue church. William Arnott preached tirelessly in, in Scotland. In the late 1800s, Andrew Murray would evangelize his native South Africa. As you entered the 1900s, these great men of faith would give way to, to new ones. Men like J. Oswald Sanders, A.W. Tozer, J. Vernon McGee, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, Pastor Chuck Smith. Even today, this missional movement represented by this church, the Philadelphian church, is alive and it's active. It's here at Calvary 316. It's present in any church that has a vision outward, but faithfully teaches God's word inwardly, relies on the power of the Holy Spirit, has a commitment to reach the lost. Now, one of the interesting things, interesting aspects with some context established about this letter, Jesus's letter to the church of Philadelphia and this missional period of church history is that, do you notice in this letter, Jesus saying anything negative to her? Now, if you read the other six letters, you're going to find that, that Jesus has a, a typical pattern, introduces a part of himself, he gives a rebuke, a commendation, some advice, whatnot. But with this church, there is no criticisms at all. Jesus has nothing negative to say, not just about this period of church history, but this local church. Nothing at all. Instead, because this church is found to be faithful, the letter that Jesus sends her is chock full of awesome promises. Before we look at the promises, notice how Jesus introduces himself. Look back at the text. Jesus says, these things says he who is holy. This phrase translated he who is holy, it's actually one word in the Greek, hagios. It, it literally means a most holy thing. In this description, Jesus is emphasizing his unique distinctiveness from all others. Because he is holy. He is by definition separate from all. But he continues. He who is true. Once again, we have here one Greek word. Meaning, opposite of that which is fictitious. Yes, it's true, but it's not counterfeit. In this reference, Jesus is emphasizing his genuineness. His authenticity. In a way, Jesus is, is saying, I'm holy, I'm distinct, I'm separate, but I'm also, man, I'm the real deal, the real McCoy. Jesus also refers to himself as he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now, this is a direct quote from Isaiah 22, verse 22. And as a result, we understand the key that he references represents the authority of the chief steward of a home. It's, it's a key that opens all doors, a universal, a master key. Once again, the detail is that Jesus is emphasizing to this church that he's faithful, that, that he's faithful and has a complete authority over all, whether it be heaven, whether it be earth, he holds the key. 
He has the authority. He can open it, no one can shut it. He can shut it, no one can open it. He's authentic, he's genuine, but he's all-powerful. What makes this entire description of Jesus unique, especially in comparison to all of the others? See, in all the other letters that Jesus writes here, when he introduces himself, he's doing something specific, actually. He's referring back to the original description of himself provided in Revelation chapter 1. But not so with this letter. What Jesus is describing is not mentioned in chapter 1 at all. So why would Jesus do this? See, I'm of the opinion that he is emphasizing an aspect of himself that's not relevant to all churches, but the faithful one. Why is that the case? Whereas all these other descriptions intend to correct problems or provide encouragement in the place of problems, it may be that Jesus emphasizes these characteristics with the specific intention of now substantiating and validating these awesome promises that he's about to make. You know, if someone's going to give you a promise, the promise is only worth the person making the promise, right? You can promise anything, but if you're a liar, good, good luck. But Jesus is going to make promises, but he wants you to first know that he's holy and that he's the real deal and that he's authentic and that he's all-powerful, meaning that if he makes you a promise, man, you can take that promise to the bank. So let's look at a few of these promises. First, Jesus promises to make those of the synagogue of Satan. I don't know what that is exactly, but I wouldn't want to be a part of it. So those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie, he says he's going to make those come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, this phrase, to worship before your feet, it doesn't mean that Christians will receive worship. There's only one person that receives any worship, and that's Jesus and Jesus alone. But that's not what he's saying. Look at it again. That will come and worship before your feet. This doesn't mean they're worshiping you or your feet. It's more of the locale by which they'll end up worshiping. Like the word itself, worship, we find here, it simply means to pay homage, to pay respect. The idea here, this phrase, before your feet, it, it signified or it painted the picture of a disciple that would come and submit himself to a teacher, to an instructor. Jesus here seems that he's promising to the faithful who are willing to carry the gospel through the open door that in the end, when the story's written, when it's all said and done, there's a promise that even their staunchest enemies and critics, those that would persecute, that there will be a day that they'll understand the error in thinking. Like he's telling this church that even when the opposition looks great, oh, his work will be greater. They'll come and worship before you. The idea is that in the end, in spite of what may come, they will know what? Something very important. That I have loved you. That I love you. Secondly, the second promise, Jesus promises to, quote, keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And then Jesus adds this exhortation. Behold, I am coming quickly. 
Now, in this passage, Jesus is specifically promising to keep this church from something very terrible, right? What is he going to keep the church from? He's going to keep this church from the hour of trial. Now, the word the, the use of this definite article, implies that Jesus is not just speaking of a trial, but something very distinct, something unique, something much more significant than a localized persecution. It is the trial. The truth of the matter is that it's impossible to place this trial or reference of such into any specific period of church history, considering the fact that Jesus gives us a bit of a description concerning the trial, right? There is the trial. I'm going to keep you from, but let me give you a little more detail. It is the trial that shall come upon the whole world. Understand, at no point since Noah's flood have we ever seen a global judgment of God. The trial. There's never been a trial to come upon the whole world as it pertains to the judgment of God. should also be mentioned here that the trial is specifically designed to do what? It's designed to accomplish something, right? It's designed to test those who dwell on the earth. This word dwell, it's, it's an interesting word. The word spoke of, of more than just someone who resided someplace. Like the word in the Greek, it means that someone settled there to inhabit to immerse yourself in. It's not that I'm just hanging out here. It's like I'm fully involved here. As you seek to understand what Jesus is getting at, keep in mind that he's promising to keep this faithful church from the hour or the time of global trial. Another thought to to consider is that every time this Greek phrase those who dwell on the earth, every time that phrase is used in the book of Revelation, it always spoke or or was used in reference to the unbelieving world and never to Christians or the believers. It's clear, at least from my understanding of the text, that Jesus is promising, that he's making a promise to this faithful church that he would keep her from from the trial across the whole world, designed to test the unbelieving world. And I think that the mechanism, though not mentioned here, would be the rapture of the church, and you can study that more on your own. This promised deliverance, which has to speak of the missional churches, there's no historical evidence this local church in Philadelphia experienced such a thing, would also explain why then Jesus says what? He says, behold, I am coming quickly. Not only is Jesus promising to come, keep that in mind. Behold, I'm coming. Jesus is coming back. There's a promise to that, an inescapable promise. You can't get around it over and over and over again. Jesus is promising, promising to return. He's coming. But this word quickly, I think it actually lends more confusion than anything else because it doesn't really mean quickly in the conventional sense that we understand it. In the Greek, it actually kind of refers to a a tachometer. It it doesn't mean that it's going to happen quickly in in the scope of like a time frame, but that when it does happen, it will happen fast. Behold, I am coming quickly, meaning when I come, I will come quickly. This won't be a drawn out uh, process. It'll happen 
immediately. The, the best mental picture that I can paint is if you're taking I-5 from Seattle to Los Angeles, or let's say to San Diego, and you're making your way uh, down the West Coast. Like, you're not going to see a whole lot of signs for San Diego, especially in Washington. Matter of fact, you'll have to get your way through Oregon. And then maybe once you get to San Francisco, you'll get one sign that says San Diego, 900 miles away. And yet the closer and closer you get to the destination, what are you going to see more of? More signs. See, the idea behind the word is, is that the closer you get to the main event, the more signs you will see that it's coming, which makes the missional church not only relevant, but our time period very exciting. Thirdly, Jesus promises that, quote, he who overcomes, I'm just going to kind of run through this quick, he who overcomes, or, or the, the person that remains faithful, he will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, which, which implies that you'll have a rest. The faithful will have a rest for all of eternity. Jesus continues, I will write on him the name of my God, yeah, there's tattoos in heaven. Jesus, the master ink artist. So I will write on him the name of my God, which, which would communicate an, an ownership. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which now speaks of, of a citizenship. You'll be owned by the king. You'll be citizens of the kingdom, which will come down out of heaven. And I, I will write on him my new name. Two tattoos a new identity that will be given in Jesus. An incredible set of promises for the faithful. Finally, Jesus closes his letter exhorting them to, quote, hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Understand, Jesus is, is not saying that, that we need to hold on to something out of a fear that someone could snatch it away from us. Someone could steal your crown. That, that's not the, the implications of holding fast. See, what Jesus is encouraging the faithful is don't discard, don't let go of the opportunities I'm setting before you, and here's why. Because if you let go of them, I will give them to someone else. I'm opening a door. Seize the opportunity. Be faithful with what's in front of you, because if you're not, someone else will be. If I'm not faithful to pastor this church, the Lord will provide someone who will be. God's work is not dependent on any of us. We're just included, like we talked about last Sunday. Now, in light of these glorious promises, there is no question that every church, and I would say Christian, you, you kind of want to be identified with this church, the Church of Philadelphia. I mean, how could you not? No criticisms. Like Jesus evaluates her, no criticisms. Nothing negative, and instead just lots of cool promises. Like, wouldn't you want to have the Savior... God King, the man, Jesus Christ, look at your life and reach these same conclusions and then be like, man, I got some promises for you. And yet, don't forget the letter is not written in a vacuum. After evaluating this church of Philadelphia, why did Jesus declare them to be faithful? Not rocket science. He declares them to be faithful because... They were faithful. Like, don't miss that. 
If you want to be found faithful, what, what, what do you think you need to do? Be faithful, thank you, audience participation. Like this church had as a very part of their DNA characteristics that Jesus commended because they were commendable. Characteristics that need to be a part of any church or specifically Christian if you want Jesus to declare to you, well done, good and faithful. And way of applying the substance of this letter to you and to our church in general. Like I want to take our, our remaining few minutes and I want to examine or establish what I'm just going to call a profile of a faithful Christian. If you want to be faithful, there are five things you should incorporate in your life. And then Jesus says, and I'll repeat, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. First, number one, if you're a note taker, a faithful Christian looks for ministry opportunities or an opportunity to be faithful. Jesus begins, look at it. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. In context to all that he's saying, this open door, it was open for one reason. Because Jesus opened it. Hey, he's got the keys, right? So he's the one that opens it. No one can shut it. And if he decides to shut it, no one can open it. In a sense, Jesus is commending this church for taking advantage of the opportunities that he had placed before them. Not only had they recognized it, that there was an opening, but they had been, been faithful to seize on the opportunity. It's one thing to see an opportunity, another thing to seize on it. And what opportunity had Jesus provided this church? Well, this is what our historical context and background helps us realize. See, looking at the concept of the Church of Philadelphia as an outpost of Greek culture as well as the missional church, this renewed emphasis on reaching the world with the gospel, the open door. What open door? The open door Jesus is referencing was the opportunity to be missionaries of his kingdom throughout the world. In a micro sense, you would say that the open door references whatever opportunity he's placed before you in your world. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 2, 3, and 4, Paul mentions the open door. When he asked the believers in Colossae to, quote, continue earnestly in prayer, being diligent in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile, praying for us, that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. I hope you understand that when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to opportunities to minister to someone in need, it's not your job to open the door. That's not your role in the process. It's Jesus' role, right? Jesus is the one that opens the door. It's your opportunity to see that it's open and walk through it, take advantage of the opportunity. As a matter of fact, <laughs> Just as a little warning, speaking personally, like I have discovered that any time there's a closed door that you kick down, you're not going to like what's on the other side. 
if you want to be found faithful, it's simple. Your job is simple. Every day, look for the Lord to open a door. Look for an opportunity. And then when you see it, be obedient. Like spend every day, Lord, give me an opportunity to minister for you. Give me an opportunity to share the gospel. Give me an opportunity. And then don't be surprised that your neighbor walks over at 11.30 at night with a, with a problem. Yeah, it's inconveniencing. I'm watching the ball game, but I prayed for an open door. That's about as open as it gets. There's a big old garage door wide open next to me with someone hurting and need. Okay, Jesus, you opened it. I'm going to walk over there. I'm going to tell, tell my brother about Jesus. Like, pray for the door to be open, but then when you see it, do it. And learn to listen to that still, small voice. Secondly, a faithful Christian depends on the Holy Spirit. Jesus commends them, notice, for having a little strength. Now, it would be easy to see that as kind of a backhanded compliment. You know, that shirt doesn't make you look too fat. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Hey, you have a little strength. Oh, right on. Cool. A little bit. Understand, I think it's actually one of the greatest compliments you could ever get from Jesus. Let me, let me elaborate. The truth is that this Philadelphian church was weak enough to know that their entire strength could only come from Jesus. Like there was no room for self-sufficiency. This is actually a, a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. And Paul writes about it often in his letters to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. 2 Corinthians 12.10, just as an example, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches, in needs, and persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. And then Paul adds, for when I am weak, it's then I'm strong. Christian, understand that the key to your faithfulness is not your strength, nor is it your resiliency, but rather it's your dependency upon the Holy Spirit's strength and sufficiency. I'll repeat that. The key to your faithfulness is not found in your strength or resiliency, your ability to be good enough. But your faithfulness is instead found in a dependency upon the Holy Spirit's strength and sufficiency. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. That's what the Lord of hosts says. See, the issue, the issue as it pertains to faithfulness, never centers upon the amount of strength that you have. It actually boils down to the source of that strength. 
True faithfulness is only found when we rely on Jesus' sufficiency in the place of our insufficiency. His ability filling the chasm of your inability. God resists the proud, but man, there's abundance of grace to the humble or someone that sees themselves for what they are. Broken and flawed and needing of divine help. 2 Corinthians 3.5, Paul says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. Our sufficiency is in God. 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul writes that Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect. Where? In weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Sadly, I believe that there are many people who are just simply too able for God to use them in any type of tangible way. You see, pride in oneself, pride in one's ability or human ingenuity, you know, it, it actually robs a person of the supernatural, world-changing, life-altering power that only comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit. This church was faithful and effective for one reason. They were totally self-aware and therefore humble. They had a proper perspective of themselves and their ability. They knew they had just a little strength. But they put it in Christ. Their unableness, it's not a word, I made it up. Their unableness made them very able to rely on the Holy Spirit. For when you're weakest, he can prove to be strongest. Thirdly, a faithful Christian centers their life on the word of God. Look again at the text. Jesus commends them for, quote, keeping his word. This word has kept. It means to attend to carefully. Like, it wasn't just that this Philadelphian church was faithful to be obedient to God's word. That's not what's being said here, that you've obeyed my word. No, you've kept it. You see, Jesus is commending them for how they approach the word of God in its entirety. It's how they centered their lives upon it, not just obeying it, but centering yourself on it. Never forget this key point. Historically speaking, revival never happens. It never happens in a community, a church, or a person. Revival never happens apart from a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But this is what most fail to observe. The singular thing that brings about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a return to an unashamed teaching of God's Word, a study of God's Word, a centering of your life upon God's Word. In the history of the church, there's never been a move of God's Spirit that wasn't first initiated by a return to God's Word. And the same is true in your life, in our church. This church in Philadelphia, as we see in the missional church movement, experienced a great awakening. Why? A great awakening brought on by the Holy Spirit and a return to the Great Commission, fulfilling their mission in the world. Why did both of those two things happen? 
because they had returned to the faithful teaching of God's word. We see this historically. God's word was central and initiated a great awakening. No awakening has ever occurred without God's word. Famous preacher Charles Spurgeon, who was right in the middle of it, this is what he said concerning your Bible. He says, if you wish to know God, which we would, right? You wish to know God, then you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how it worketh by his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it actually is brought to pass, you can only discover it by his word. Now mark this, Spurgeon said, by this you know whether you are a child of God or not, by the respect you have for your father's word. If you have small respect for that word, the evidences of a bastard are upon you. End quote. Fourth, a faithful Christian is Christ-like. I think that's simple enough. You know, I'm blown away by the fact that Jesus commends them for not denying his name. Did you see that? Like here was a missional-minded church, a church dependent on the Holy Spirit, a church that held God's word in high esteem. <laughs> it only seemed logical, right, that Jesus now commends them for their faithfulness to represent his name well. You know, the idea behind this phrase, not denying, it's more than just like making a decision to stand for Christ, like in the face of an opposition. Like the idea is that it was through their actions that they were living up to the high standard of the name for which they represented. My dad would always tell us growing up, especially as the firstborn. That name, Adams, I've worked really hard for that to mean something. And when you go to school, you need to realize that name means something. And that name will be applied to your siblings that will also come through that school. Oh no, there's another one of those Adams kids. Live in such a way to uphold the name. And they were. They were Christians. Now that name was first used in Antioch in a derogatory sense. It literally means little Christs. There's a bunch of those little Christs. And they're like, awesome. Like, yeah, sweet. I'll put that on my name tag. Christians, little Jesus. You see, they were Christians. The name meant something. We live in a culture today, man. People throw out the word, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And it means nothing. It means not, you look at their life and it's like, if that's what a Christian is, huh, that's weird. Like the name means something, it mattered. It was significant and separated them from the rest of their world. Christian, if you're to be found faithful, understand it's paramount that you take seriously the name for which you represent. Your actions as a Christian do not just reflect on you. They reflect on the family and our Heavenly Father. As a matter of fact, I know this is kind of an extreme way of phrasing it, but it's true nonetheless. Do you know that Jesus' standing in our community rests on the way you represent Him? That's that moment where you're like, I need the Holy Spirit. I can't do this. I need God's Word, right? I mean, these all stack together. But how sad it is 
that so many of the misconceptions that our world has about Jesus are not true, but they are based because Christians poorly represent him. Jesus, there was not a judgmental bone in his body as we perceive it. And yet, what's one of the criticisms about Jesus? Judgmental. Why? Because Christians are often judgmental. So people look at the way we behave and they think Jesus is that way when he's the opposite of it. Number five. A faithful Christian perseveres. Jesus says, you have kept my command to persevere. That's pretty much the point, isn't it? Seems likely that in context of this promise, to keep them from the hour of trial which would come upon the whole world, that Jesus is referencing here a perseverance in the presence of a trial or, or a specific persecution, an opposition. Now, once again, the key to unpacking the deeper lesson is to place this commendation in the context of this ancient city and the missional church. As the final outpost between the Roman world and the barbarians outside the gates, Philadelphia had to constantly defend herself from what? Infiltration, compromise. Like Philadelphia existed to influence the world beyond, not vice versa, in much the same way. We see this in the missional movement. The, the key to being a good missionary is to go into an area and find ways to build a bridge with the culture you want to influence without compromising the gospel. Hudson Taylor did this perfectly. In China, he was the first mission, wasn't the first missionary there, but he was the first missionary to arrive, take off his European clothes, adopt the local look, start speaking Mandarin, and presented the gospel in that culture. So you had these Chinese people that I can be Chinese and a believer. I don't have to become British and wear really goofy outfits. It was a good thing. The ability to adopt a culture without minimizing a message. Please understand, faithfulness requires, it actually kind of by its very definition demands, the willingness to persevere. And you can only persevere in the presence of what? Opposition. Like it demands the tenacity to stand for what's true. Even if such a position goes against the tide of popular opinion, it necessitates the simple acceptance that following Jesus is going to draw the ire of a world that crucified him, that you'll be ultimately persecuted for your beliefs. That, that will happen. And it's in such instances, if you want to be found faithful, what must you do? Quit. <laughs> no. Persevere. Persevere. In the end, I pray. I pray for myself, for our church, for you. If you want to hear the, the, the most glorious words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the words you want to hear when your life is all evaluated. Please understand this will only happen if you're a good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> you, were, you were far from good or faithful, but yo, come on in. It's good and faithful. See, to be faithful, friend, 
like this Philadelphian church, like the missional church, to be faithful, it is paramount that you must be willing to walk through the open doors, the doors that Jesus opens. It's essential that you remain dependent upon the Holy Spirit. That you walk in the Spirit so you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That you keep God's Word at the center of your life. That it's not just about reading God's Word or having a devotion in God's Word or playing Russian roulette with God's Word. I'm just going to find a verse. There it is. Judas hung himself. What is God trying to say to me? but basing your whole life that there's a love for it, an appreciation to it, that, that you immerse yourself into it. God's word to be found faithful. That you take seriously your calling to represent Jesus to the world around you and that when you face persecution as a result, that you're willing to persevere. Five things, the profile of a faithful Christian. So Father, Lord, we all repent because we fall short of all this.